thank you for tuning in to another edition of the Business of Fun podcast. I'm your host, Dave Wakeman. My guest today is my friend, Bruce McTagg. This is a little bit different episode because Bruce is a think tank guy and he is a futurist. So um, we cover all kinds of different stuff that may be a little different than what you normally get from the Business of Fun podcast, but I think it's fairly interesting because he talks about... um, you know, mental states and approaches to business, you know, so you can focus on improvement. And we hit on a lot of stuff. So we talk about providing value. Uh, We talk about the dissonance in decision-making, diversity in business ecosystems. Uh, We talk about crises. We understand pragmatic versus possibilities. Uh, We talk a little bit about, you know, his take on uh, all of this hubbub around Ticketmaster. We talk about uh, cruise ships, uh, transactional businesses, uh, entertainment and the arts, and how value creation uh, happens in a context uh, and struggle that the people have between meaning and mattering. Um, we talk about systems of money, segmentation. I mean, it's like really, really like um, a different conversation, but one that's interesting. I think one that will um, provide you a lot of food for thought. So without anything further from me, here is my conversation with Bruce McTagg on the Business of Fun podcast. All right. I want to welcome my buddy, Bruce McTagg, to the Business of Fun podcast. Bruce, this is going to be awesome because you are my first think tank smarty that I've had on here. And we are going to talk about the future of business and the future of work. Uh, we are going to talk about burning down Twitter. Uh, we are going to we'll just burn it down today. This is going to be good. This is going to be awesome. <laughs> if you don't like it, you probably want to just click onto the next one right now because I don't know where this is going. But Bruce, thanks for coming, man. No, I really, really enjoy the opportunity. And anytime I can talk about burning anything down, I'm happy. Oh, let's burn it all down today. All right. Where do, I don't even know where we start here because we had like a probably like a 45-minute conversation before we even started recording, which is, you know, probably left a lot of good stuff on the floor here. Um, but let's start. Let's begin at the beginning because your most of your work talks about the future of business, right? That's where that's why you are the think tank smarty and all of these things. Um, what does it mean right now to be somebody who fo- really thinks about and focuses on the business, uh, the future of business, the future of work, um, especially like, you know, like living in a world and living through a time where there's a lot of crises that we're dealing with? Well, I think, first of all, I'll start with the, the crisis portion of it. I think discerning what is a real crisis, what's a systemic crisis and what is just a momentary momentary problem um, in a world that everybody feels like it, everything is crumbling is a difficult thing to be able to do. And I spend a lot of time, uh, I don't think I'm a think tank smarty. Let's just be honest about that. You should take that and run with it. Think tanks, think tanks, a blessing. (laughs) think tanks are typical of everybody else. They have a specialty. So if they're geopolitics or if they're technology, they have a specialty and sometimes it's helpful for them to have somebody who has run a business, who understands what business is, to be able to talk to them. In a, um, and I almost always talk about in terms of prag- pragmatism and possibilities. So what are the pragmatic aspects of uh, the future of business and what are the possibilities? Because at some point we need to be able to transition the two. And 
it's a, to me, it's a, it's a interesting time. And before we even got to the starting on the, the podcast, discussions like this have been happening for a very, very long time. Uh, I mean, I, I go back to their, I'm going to throw out names. Thorsten Veblen was in the 1900s who was talking about the importance of individual work and craftsmanship. You had Mary Parker Follett, who was in the 1920s, mm-hmm. who were talking about these different things. The, what's happened now is, is now there's a large enough group of people who kind of feel like there's an issue in the business world. And, and they can't really put their finger on it, or people are trying to put their finger on it. Like, what is, what is the problem? And... The reality, you and I have talked about it before, and we can parse it out however you want to be able to do it, but it's actually a confluence of factors. So a variety of certain factors have affected how people feel about work, how they feel about going to work, doing the work. Um, And because all these people feel that way, business itself feels like they're being impacted. They don't know what to do. I don't care if you're a C-level person or not. Uh, I can go into any boardroom and there's just a general sense of discomfort. Mm -hmm. And they could have the best bottom line in the world. And I think part of my job, um, I'm not an organizational design practitioner, although I do introduce organizational design. I'm not a business strategy person like you or a marketing strategist but I direct people to them. I'm more in the framing business. Yeah. Uh, And it's interesting you brought the people thing too, because, you know, largely this audience has mostly been focused historically on uh, marketing and selling live experiences. So sports and concerts and entertainment. And um, recently, you know, there's like so much inter- uh, attention paid to Ticketmaster and the technology and all of these things. And I, and I've been taking, I've been taking to telling people like, well, I don't really care about the technology, like, or even the ticket itself. My concern, my thoughts, my feelings are all about the people. I love the people that are involved. Right. And anything that kind of gets to me, that gets in the way of people getting together and having fun and gathering like we have for Thousands and thousands of years is, uh, you know, something that we probably have to look at, Um, you know, so when you're looking, when you're thinking about like the elements of organizational design, you're thinking about the future of business and work, you know, where does like, because and I I guess I'm a long way around this idea of competition and um, limiting competition, you know. How, how do you think about that? Because I see it as just ultimately harmful, right? I think that there's a strength in diversity. I think there's strength in, strength in competition. And I think that a lot of the ills that you're talking about and that discomfort is comes down to the lack of competition and the lack of diversity. But I could be wrong. And that's why I have it like, you know, I was excited to talk to you. Well, no, you're you're right about it. And let's circle back to Ticketmaster. So Ticketmaster decided it is no different than almost any large, I would say, multinational business that decided that technology was the future. So what they elected to do or what most of those companies do is they say, I'm going to invest in technology so that I can become more efficient at transactions. And somewhere along the way, they forgot they really weren't transactions. 
they forgot that they really weren't selling tickets. What they were doing was was providing some value to an individual, to a person. So Ticketmaster, even though they sell tickets, I don't care if you're a professional sports team and you're selling tickets. The reality would be is, is you're asking somebody to make a choice or a decision. Or you're asking them to make an investment in an experience or whatever. But you you flip the conversation where it's I'm not in the selling business. I'm actually in the asking business. And Ticketmaster and a lot of other companies decided, you know what? I'm going to invest in technology because what I want is, is I want a frictionless experience so that people can get from A to B. And they forgot that it's really about people like you were talking about. How do I, and and that's where competition comes into play because um, if everybody invests in technology, you everybody becomes a commodity. Yeah. It's, it's, the reality would be is, is that, and I would guess that's Ticketmaster's biggest fear is, is they have some technological software infrastructure mm-hmm. to be able to disseminate tickets, although it appeared yesterday that it sort of all fell apart. Um, Unprecedented sw- demand. But <laughs> but did you have a pre-sale where people registered their demand in advance? <laughs> but what do I know? <laughs> well, and th- there you get into, now, yeah, I mean, we can talk about the, uh, the limitations of technology. Yes. So te- technology is supposed to scale. It's supposed to scale multiplicatively and exponentially. Mm-hmm. And, and yet it failed. And it yeah. failed with a company who decided or has elected that that will be the, the backbone of who and what they are, that they're going to be technology. So you and I probably would walk into Ticketmaster's office and say, you are not a technology company. You are in the business of benefiting people. That is the business you're in. So if your technology does not meet that end, maybe you need to rethink about how you go about doing your business. Well, yeah, I think too now you, you would hard, it would be hard to view who they're i mean i know they're helping the artists because they you know in some ways and i know there's like help it but it comes down to how do i want to put this it's um how are they helping the artist yeah tell well, tell me how they're helping the artist well they 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 help them extract more money for the, that might otherwise go to the secondary market but there are also um you could ar- there's arguments that people could credibly make um you know is that effective or not because you know, some artists don't want to, they want their tickets to get into the market at a certain price, you know, so like there's certain, you know, I'm sure there, I know there's value there somewhere. It's just that I don't know if, um, you know, I, I just questioned as a whole of, for the ecosystem, if it's, if it's as valuable as, as it's made out to be, because I don't know that the technology is very helpful, right? Like technology is supposed to scale, like you said, and, you know, it's supposed to exponentially, uh, you know, vertically and horizontally. If somebody's sitting in, in line on a virtual line for three, four, five hours to buy a ticket, 
I don't think that's really, you know, that's not really scalable. That's worse than when you had to stand in line or as bad as sitting in line or sleeping out on the concrete, which I did when I was a kid. Right. You know, so it's it's a quest. I question the I guess the mission of the operation because it doesn't it's definitely not for the fans. The so fans suffer. And let's go back to the artist on that. Yeah, because. We know in business, the longer you make somebody wait, the higher the expectations are going to be. So mm-hmm. here you are an artist, and you find out that 25% of the people, probably your most rabid fans, have had a miserable shopping experience for the ticket, Yeah, which drives up the expectations for the performance. And I don't know how that benefits the artists themselves. The artists want to be able to... Pr- perform their art. Yeah. That mm-hmm. is that is what they want to be able to do. They want to and I can't remember it's a I think it's a Dave Grohl quote and he said the most the most fabulous thing is, is I can sing a song and 40,000 different people hear it a different way. Yeah. That's the value to them. Sure, they're going to make a buck out of the deal and I'm sure that they all want to make sure that they get their wallets are filled yeah. in in in, in, some, in some way, but the intrinsic value that they get is being able to perform and to be able to get the response back. That mm-hmm. is what an artist wants. Yes. So well, I would I would also say too that it's interesting uh, and that, that Dave, if it's Dave Grohl, it's amazing because I also there's a really great Michael Stipe quote. He goes, "Do you want to know what real power is?" Is like standing on stage, raising your hand, and having twenty people, twenty thousand people shut up. Uh, yeah. And it's the same. It's the same sort of thing. I would say that like sort of this extraction method, right, uh, that happens on all sides of of this relationship now. Too, it, it forgets that there's two forms of value. You know, there's tangible value, but there's also intangible value. And like you said, it's the higher expectations for longer wait time. Um, increases the expectation that somebody has but then you also factor in the price and that's going to elevate the expectation as well and so at a certain point it becomes the artist can never meet that need right um they can never meet the expectation yeah um and then i would say too that like this it's interesting that taylor swift was the one who's um suffering from this right now and i'm glad to see that most of the ire from the fan base is directed at ticketmaster not at her because i felt that like her last tour i think it was 2018 she suffered the most because they she bought into the verified fan thing she bought into the boost she bought into all these things and i think it burnt her fan base in a way that like it seems like she had made had an understanding that it was not cool for her and uh, like you know, and then to see it happen again is it, it, it's unfortunate for her. But again, and I don't know if there's a question there. There's just a, an observation. Well, it's not. We're now we're actually talking about systems. Yeah. So system systems and any business is a system, and any time that the system doesn't work the, the way it's supposed to work, then there's always there's a a failure in one part of the system and the entire system falls apart. And the, the artists start getting, starts getting shit. Um, and I personally, I don't think it's fair, but yet she's the one who has to save it. It's kind of like in a business presentation where everybody is sucked throughout the entire presentation. And the last yeah. person stands up and you're just hoping like hell that that son of a bitch does the best job that they've ever done their entire life and saves mm-hmm. the day. 
And I just can't envision if I'm an artist, I want to be put in that position. Yeah. And and I don't know. And I don't know. I I know a couple of musicians. I have no idea if they think about these sorts of things or not. But you and I do. You and I think about like behavioral things. We think about uh, how people make choices and decisions and anticipation and expectation and those sorts of things and try to figure out a way of setting people up to be as successful as they can possibly be. Ticketmaster is doing absolutely nothing. If their clients are the artists, they are failing miserably. Because if that's their clients, they're not setting them up for success. Well, what would I, you say to the person who's talking like going, oh, well, but they're maximizing their value. You know, they're va- maximizing the price. And, you know, and I know, I think I know what you're going to say. But, but, you know, what would you say to them? Yeah, because that's really the argument. And then the other side of the argument is that, you know, Ticketmaster takes the shit so that the artist doesn't have to. Yeah, I don't, and I don't know their business inside and out like you you probably do, but it, but I think at some point um, now we are moving into kind of more my wheelhouse when you start talking about the future of business and music is a is a business. I, I don't think artists like to think of it that way, um, but it, at some point you have to figure out, and I think some artists get it. I, I think that they have figured out that um, I think it's she had a fabulous um, autobiography, Juliana Hatfield. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. She, she wrote a book. And at some point, I think she said something along the lines of I, I realized I was never going to be the best, but I was going to be happy making music and singing and doing the things that I want to be able to do. And I would guess that that's an extremely hard thing to be able to realize. But I, I mean, businesses should be thinking the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you don't. So Ticketmaster, when you start talking about uh, Ticketmaster, <laughs> you can really get me going on Ticketmaster because I actually think they have the two things that I absolutely abhor. Um, in the business, and that's exploitation and extraction. They actually have the double whammy of what I think is killing business just in general. Anytime you exploit a relationship and anytime you extract, yes, uh, it, it's it's the double whammy of dismal business. Yeah, and and, and I, I I um I think that part of it too, as as you were saying this, I was thinking about when they um when they have their earnings calls or when they talk about things, it's very, uh, to me, it always feels cold and calculating. Like, again, the way that they talk about fans, it is like an extraction thing and an exploitation. Um, at least that's the way it feels to me. I mean, it could, I could be wrong. I mean, I'm, I'm often wrong. I mean, all, all I have to do is check my mentions on Twitter or, uh, uh, to fi- or my email inbox to find out how wrong I am. But yeah, I think maybe you pointed out to it. The exploitation and extraction thing is dehumanizing. And what what has been, what should be, and this is the arts and sports and everything just in general, a celebration of what makes life worth living, right, um, has become cold and calculated and financialized. And I think that's what we see going on. And that takes the form of let me exploit 
this opportunity to the maximum of my benefit, right? So uh, by sitting, you know, having all this market power, you're able to sit in the middle of all these different streams of and, and connections and take your share, right? No, even if you don't add value, and then you extract the maximum value from every member of that audience, um, that would make it make it feel a little bit colder, a little less exciting, a little less fun. Yeah, um, I, I just don't understand it. I don't. So, you know, a comparable in a weird way would be cruise ships. I mean, the reality would be is, is I, I need butts and berths. So it's the same thing as kind of like having an event. But I, I don't know. Majority of customers or people feel like they're being treated like people. They feel like they're getting value, even though there's somebody trying to figure out a way of hooking them up into the proper berth. They have choices for birth. They have amenities that are tied to the birth. There are amenities that come along with the entire experience. The majority of people who fork over the dollars, and there can be a lot of money forked over for oh, yeah. birth. <laughs> but the majority of the people feel like the experience, the purchase experience was relatively good. They feel like they were asked to be able to make a decision and they had choices available to make a decision and they went on a cruise and had a pretty freaking good time. <laughs> yeah. Out of it. And I, I just don't know. Ticketmaster thinks that way. I think, I think Ticketmaster, to be fair to them, they came into the business of transact. They were in the transaction business. Yeah. That, that yeah. is it. They, they just said, how, how do I, I, I get X amount of tickets. How do I get X amount of tickets into X amount of people's hands? And people let people um, self-select what it is that they want. So if people want to be in the front row, then they get to self-select to be able to do it. And I don't, I don't know. You, you've said blow them up. I'd blow them up. And I don't and I think I think the world would be uh, and we can move to Twitter because I would not blow up Twitter. But um, there are just so many other options available where actually I could lean into technology. Yes. I mean, it's it's not a difficult thing to be able to do to decentralize Ticketmaster. Yeah. And and literally have every single community have their own version of it. You you can well, do a variety of different things. Well, that's like a little bit of how it operates in Europe, right? There's like so much more competition. There, uh, um, the anti-competition laws are much enforced much more aggressively. Um, you know, and it creates a much more vibrant system because people are where it really helps is like so for arts and sports and a lot of organizations. Not maybe not as much in sports all the time, but there's more competition. And that means that people have to work more aggressively to sell. So then it helps make the you know, creates more jobs, right? Because it creates more uh incentives to perform, uh build better relationships. I, I see all of these things happening in you know in a way that doesn't happen here in the States. And what I the point of the I hope that is not missed by people in, in this conversation because it's not really um, I told you this and I did not say break it up. I said, burn it down or did oh, I say burn, burn it, it down? down? Yeah, I <laughs> said burn it down, down but burn I didn't say down. burn it down about Ticketmaster. I was just like, well, I can burn it down. I can I can go burn it down on everything uh, <laughs> some days. Um, so I can burn it down. I can burn down everything. Um, 
but what I hope everybody takes from this, not so much that like on, oh, Dave and Bruce are like beating up on Ticketmaster because Ticketmaster is really irrelevant to this conversation. They are just an example that we can use that's in live entertainment. Um, but you should, if you are in a arts organization, you need to think about not so much the maximization, but think about the humanity. Because if you are a hu- if you create the humanity, then people will pay for that. Because people are yearning for that, right? Like, I, I mean, you know, you see people out all the time. I, I went to um, several events lately, and th- there's just like joy in being able to get together after years of not being able to do that thing. Um, the more humanity that you're able to inject into your uh, your, your place of business that uh, sells this art form or these these events, the better I think the better the outcome's going to be, right? Because I know from nightclubs. I started out in nightclubs. Bruce, did you know I started out in nightclubs or no? Uh, actually, you probably did because you heard uh, when I talked to Giles uh, that I could make more money not necessarily charging people the maximum every time. And that was, you know, I, I found that out pretty early on. And I, I often look at these th- these record numbers and go, you don't know how much money you're leaving on the table by extracting every penny out of every transaction you are, you're, you're making. And I believe it was a... Um, Bill Graham, the famous concert promoter, made uh, a statement about pricing tickets one time way back in the 60s or 70s. And he said, like, he go, they go, you could get an extra 20 bucks for this ticket tonight. He goes, but I need concert goers next week. And that was like, you know, and that's always kind of stuck with me. Um, well, but that's me. No, it's not. I, I think that you're in, in all businesses, entertainment, arts, I, I don't care if you're in manufacturing, it doesn't really matter. Everything, um, your, your value creation happens in a context. So society is different today than it was 40 years ago. I think anybody, um, any sane person would look around at society at the moment and, and say people are kind of struggling a little bit with uh, meaning or mattering. Like what really matters and how do I be able to find some meaning in life? I'm not suggesting that like the soul of the world has crumbled, but I I do think in a high uncertainty environment, people are looking for lily pads of some sort of meaning and meaningful experiences and things Mm -hmm. like that. So I think any business that takes a step back and says, yeah, I'm going to be charging people money. Absolutely, I'm going to do that. But the more I can embed into that price, in in terms of, um, I call it head, heart, and wallet. But if there's a way to be able to embed as much in it so that people feel like it was a meaningful use of their money, a meaningful use of their time, a meaningful use of their attention, then all of a sudden you've heightened your value. Um, and I think any arts or any entertainment is interested in the, the more often you can heighten meaning in an individual intrinsically, the more likely they are to come back. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the interesting thing too is about you said value creation happens in the context. And, and, and I think that's like something that people often – forget about as well it's that a lot of times the value that you create is intangible it's not 
in like uh, another t-shirt or the ticket itself it's in that whole all of those you know the head hard and wallet pretty encapsulates it pretty well it's about the feeling the impression that you leave people with it's you know it's about um something much much more than just like the cold hard reality of i've got another tour t-shirt or i've got a uh uh, a, a cast recording of Avenue Q, which I do have and I love, by the way. <laughs> well, well, and the t- the T-shirt, and we talked about my favorite's the producers, before. though. Full, full, full stop. So. You know, the the T-shirt selling isn't the objective; it's an outcome. So, um, the more T-shirts I sell as people are leaving, the more likely I have to have offered meaningful value to people. Because they're willing to spend even more money after after they've had the experience. So I'm I'm not in that business, but I would be measuring how my my t-shirt sales on the way in versus on the way out. If so I what possibly- does it say if you have fans lined up to buy t-shirts before, you know, like they're camped out? What does that tell you? Well, I think the anticipation. I mean, then mm-hmm. that's. To me, you're measuring anticipation and expectation. And if I were ever going to do some sort of research, I think I would do follow-up to be able to say, do you feel like um, you got good value for, from the evening or something along those lines? Mm-hmm. And you, then you kind of, um, and I'm sort of spitballing here at the moment on this, but it would be interesting to see if all of a sudden the people who purchased the T-shirts that beforehand had lower um, satisfaction than the people who actually purchased uh, t-shirts afterwards. That would be a, that would really be an interesting thing to, to I'd understand. start I'd start I'd start picking away at that. I would be like, okay, well, what happened to the? That's where like a I think you start picking at a Ticketmaster. Then you start going, okay, so the people who purchased the t-shirts when they walked in or prior to it. Um, had they had an incredibly long lead times versus the, the people who who didn't afterwards, you know, and, and you can pick it apart like that. But then you start picking away the experience, which is good, because anytime you can do that, the, the more likely you are to be able to build a, a total value um, the, to the price. Yeah, I, and, and the way you talked about it too. So how I view it, right, as a marketer and um, I would say that I'm at this point a better marketer than most people. Um, so take <laughs> humble, if, very yeah, humble. My my near death experience made me like much less humble than I would have been. I would have been like going, eh, you know, like oh, there's a, there's you know, I, I, I'm okay. No, I I know this for sure that that I and so take this as like not necessarily my thoughts but my advice. And that's the only reason I say this is that every touch point matters, right? So. It starts with the anticipation starts before people even begin to think about the ticket, right? The, the, this is research that I've done over the years with clients all over the place. The touch points start way, way further before than you imagine, and they go much longer at, than they do afterwards, right? So every time that there's a contact, everything that you ha- that happens, it matters, you know? And so like, some of these things, right? So most of this has been focused on technology. Most of this has been uh, far too much has been paid attention, been paid to Ticketmaster. This is more attention than I've ever given Ticketmaster in my life because I really don't give a shit. It's the uh, the honest truth. People ask me how I feel about it. I even get people go, they don't, you don't, you don't seem to hate Ticketmaster. I go, I could give 
a rat's ass about Ticketmaster, I could still give a shit about Ticketmaster, <laughs> except for the fact that they stand in the way of more people going to shows um, because their marketing for their venues and their partners is not very good. Right. I say that as a world class marketer that, you know, the technology stunts people's ability to go to shows. That's what I care about. Right. I want people to be there to get into the shows, to get engaged. I want people to have a good experience from the first time I touch them to the last. And that lowers people's satisfaction. That probably and that, I would say that at the end, if you ask people about it, they would that that would probably be something that they would get dinged on. And if that is that under that under um, undercuts that meaningful relationship between the head, the heart, and the wallet. But you know, again, I give a shit about the entire nature of the relationship. I don't think the relationship that you create in one event ever ends. I think that you keep that thing going if you're doing a good job. And I think the problem for a lot of organizations and businesses is that it's a transaction. Right. You got you started it out. You got me on this road now with the exploitation and extraction. But it says that there's that there's a price tag on my relationship with you. Right. That's what the dynamic pricing does. Right. Dynamic pricing has some great sides to it. It'll uh, it get you the most value. But at the same time, it undermines the brand equity. It makes your customers feel like they, they are a transaction. It does all these things, you know, all these negative things to you. And But the one good thing it does is it gets you it helps you be responsive and pr- supply and demand and extract the most price. Um, all of these things matter. And, and that's my big issue with any of these with, with a lot of this stuff is that like you're taking the humanity out of like something that should be joyful and exciting. You got to put the humanity back in. Yeah. And I'll, I'll, I'll add, that on. was a good rant. No, 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 no. I, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll add on to that. And yeah. you, you can debate with me on this one, but part of the issue with segmentation, when you come to these sorts of things is you run the risk of it becoming a caste system. Um, I see this a, a lot with businesses. So, uh, Anybody who can afford to buy a $20,000 ticket is a, versus somebody who can't, but yet they're equal fans. So all of a sudden, I've created a mini-cast system between the haves and the have-nots. I don't know that that's a healthy thing. And I think that that's always my pushback when people go, but I can charge a higher price. And I go, well, what's the price to you for that? And once again, we come back to where I am and what I do mm-hmm. in terms of the future of business. I do think businesses, I know it sounds esoteric, and I know that you're a brand strategist and a marketing strategist, but I think businesses need to be having more of these types of conversations. Mm-hmm. How does my business divide and how does my business unite? How do I make sure that my business doesn't inherently create an us versus them narrative? How do I create a business that simply because somebody doesn't buy my product or go to my event doesn't make them a bad person? I think they need to be thinking about those sorts of things. How do you become, go ahead. No, I think that's right. Uh, and it go it's a systemic thing, right? And what the, has always been available, I think, to people is there was a um, you know, part of the, the joy of getting the ticket was the um, you know, like you're you're kind of in that like cattle car of people who and you all every there was a similar um 
opportunity to get it right like you had to stand in line outside of like uh peaches or blockbuster music or whatever it was back in you know and, and when i was a kid um to get your ticket right and there was like a, it was communal then you know you'd go to the show and you could be sitting next to whomever right like at the show and it could be like a, a, bil- a millionaire banker or it could be somebody who just like made very you know had scraped the last couple pennies together to do it and there was like a sort of a mixing and one of the beautiful things about art sports entertainment all these things was that there was that mixing and so when you talked about systemic issues before it's that seg- uh, you the caste system that set that segmentation and that stratification it's also um a society issue right it, and it, it's part of the reason that a lot of these issues that we see culturally are happening as well is because you can't relate people don't really don't have the ability to relate to each other right like i live in northwest dc um you know pretty well off you know all of these things i'm separated from a lot of other people who aren't doing as well if i don't actively go out and do something you know and, and make that happen um you know even when i go to events right because most of the time i'm sitting in a suite or i'm sitting in like a premium seat um, if I don't engage with people, that's so that mixing never happens. And, and so I don't know if that's a agreeing or disagreeing you, but but it it does. I think it's important. Like it gives you know when I go to Europe, a good example. Last time I was at uh, in London, I went to Chelsea. I went to Stamford Bridge. I sat right behind the goalie, and I, and these I was sitting with people who were not like super rich or anything, first row, um, but they family had had the tickets for. 100 years, right? The tickets had been 100 years in the family, and we were surrounded by people all over the place. Like, the guy next to me was, like, a banker, on, you know, in the city, and, like, the guy that I got the ticket from was, like, him and his mom were at the thing. So I was, like, mixing with all these people and people, you know, from all over. That's the beauty of these events, and I think that's being um, undermined by, like, just trying to maximize everything. But and, and it's not just in entertainment. It's all across society. Everything's financialized to the point that there's humanity has been removed again like maybe i'm an idiot no but i I think i'm sure i'll get emails that will tell me i am after this is over (laughs) no you're you're right and but it's and it's a this is where i talk to businesses because i think it's difficult um i feel sorry sometimes for celebrities and artists because the majority of them worked really really hard to get to where they are today i mean they worked incredibly hard they gave up a lot of different things to be as successful as they are. And then when they speak out, there's always a large voice that pushes back and says, why should I listen to this person? They can't, I cannot relate to them. They make millions of dollars. And you want to sit down with some of these people and go, God, I got to tell you, they may have been living in Greenwich Village. They may have been living in a one bedroom with four different people in Los Angeles when they were trying to figure out how to be able to, you know, become as successful as they possibly could. So I feel sorry for them. I don't know how they solve that. I do think business can help solve that. I think business can can start doing more things to be able to uh, incorporate more people. Yeah. And you, I can do that in entertainment. I can do that in, in arts. It gets difficult. I think that uh, places like the Louvre are, are absolutely fantastic at, at allowing um, anybody. Uh, you could be 
somebody who doesn't make a lot of money, who really doesn't make a lot of money, but you can wander the halls of the Louvre at a relatively good price. And and the thing is, is you you're walking around with probably some of the elite minds of the world who probably know more about individual pieces of art than you and I would ever know if we read about it the, our entire lives. And you are. You get to hear people who are relatable, who will talk to you with passion about artwork and sculpture and, and different things like that. I think museums, uh, I think most museums are absolutely fantastic at understanding that they're about uh, enriching people. How about that? Yeah. No, no, I I tend to agree. I, and I, um, I think that, you know, again, I, I want to, I guess, you know, again, we, 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 we spend a lot of, more, more than too much time talking about Ticketmaster here. Um, <laughs> Let's go to Twitter. I, oh, I was going to say, we're going to go to Twitter. Uh, what I really am grateful for, though, is that I hope that people take this, you know, because I don't have think tank smarties on very often. Actually, you're the first, almost 200 episodes. Um, because what it is, is like when I did in, uh, my NPS study for the newsletter and the podcast, people liked it that I challenged their preconceived notions of what's going on and what i hope came through and has come through so far in this is like going just challenge yourself right to like instead of looking at it like um, being a technology business or an extraction model like what can i do how can i change my model what what should be done differently what can i you know how can i approach this from a different mindset um you know because honestly to me I don't care about any one technology tool or business unless it's be, they're impeding a people's ability to get together. If it's unless it's impeding people's um, joy and, and and love of going to events, um, you know that's always my thing. My my thing is always about the people, and you know. So my problem with anything is like going: Are you doing something that undermines people's perception of value of the event? Are you doing something that's standing in the way and you know, stopping people from going, or are you doing something that's disincentivizing people from enjoying these things? Because I, to me, like having the chance to go to Stanford Bridge or go to Wembley or go to Madison Square Garden to the Pearl Jam concert, those are life affirming things. The, like the the thing that when I was in the hospital with the long COVID over the earlier in the year, the thing that kept me going was like, if I get out of this fucking hospital, and this is the most I've ever cussed on this, Bruce, so thank you, um, was I'm going to get to that Pearl Jam concert at Madison Square Garden. And you better believe I got to that Pearl Jam concert at Madison Square Garden, and it brought tears to my eyes. I was so happy to be there with like, you know, 25. And it was the most packed I've ever seen Madison Square Garden. It was amazing. Um, but that's not neither here nor there. Let's talk about another joyous topic because you brought it up then. It's Twitter. <laughs> that um, social that social experience experience that seems to be having an issue at the moment <laughs> yeah no we, we won't spend too much time but it's like it, it, on it but it's like pretty fun to watch this because my take on it is and i'll ask you then is is this is that this is if you if people ask me what does it look like when somebody doesn't have when a business doesn't have a strategy i'll just point to twitter now because there is no um there's no evident strategy because strategy comes through in the actions you take, uh, the direction you're moving, and there is no coherent logic to any of these decisions that are being made right now. And it really, like, it's kind of funny to watch something to self-destruct in real time. 
Yeah, I'm not I'm not in the self-destruction mode yet on Twitter. Um, I would say that uh, Kara Swisher said it the best when she was asked if you had one thing that you could ask Elon, what would it be? And she said, what the hell are you doing? Because I think from the outside to most of us, it doesn't appear there's a strategy. I, I'm not even really clear what the vision is, for God's right. sake. I mean, how yeah. can you have a strategy if you don't even have a vision? So I'm I'm a little unclear on that. However, I'm going to couch it because I, I have said to companies before, what are you willing to do to survive? So and one of my favorite stories to tell is, is in the war of, I think it was 1812, Napoleon was on his way into Russia and Moscow, the Moscow mayor burned Moscow. He burned Moscow to be able to have Russia survive. And I look at companies and I say the same thing. How much are you willing to sacrifice to be able to survive? And you know what? He may be doing that. He may be looking at shit and and just killing it. And I'll add on to that. And I said this in a tweet yesterday. I believe it's a little ripe that all the people who grouse about short-termerism and instant gratification and knee-jerk reactions to short-term things are beating the crap out of Elon Musk at the moment because it's really, really easy to step up to the plate now and point out all the shit that we think is wrong and all the things that we would do differently, of which absolutely there are certain things that I scratch my head and say, there's no way I would ever do it this way. But I can't judge at the moment. It's kind of like I'm in the middle of, uh, I apologize for swearing on this, but we're in the middle of a shit storm. But I have no it idea. Away. It's just a, a, a fluke that I have not used as much <laughs> profanity as I have before today. But it, it's we're just in the middle of it. So I don't know. I don't know. It, it may turn out to be I, I seriously doubt all the people, not all the people, 90 percent of the people who say they're going to leave the platform are going to leave. They're not going to leave. I mean, I would have never met you if it hadn't been for Twitter. I wouldn't have been part of a, a wonderful community of people who are good thinkers if it hadn't been for Twitter. Um, I'm not going to lose that no matter what what happens. And You got you know, me now. <laughs> you got me. <laughs> well, I mean, and, and Twitter, I mean, I think that for all the crap that we give Twitter, you and I can ha exchange tweets on Twitter and exactly below us on a timeline, there could be a tinfoil hat loon saying some conspiracy. And you know what? We have the ability to ignore it. We have the That's what makes it great. Is that <laughs> there's like <laughs> you can have like a really high level smart conversation at the same time, like the 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 tinfoil hat loony bins going on about something else below. That, that's actually usually what's happening in my com in my comment section. So it's fine. But 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 circling back to the conversation that we had just before this, there is a value collectively for all of us to see what the hell is going on. And and I'm not suggesting that Twitter is indicative of everything that's in society, but it, it's certainly. Uh, gives us the ability to be able to see a variety of different opinions 
and a variety of different views, if not a variety of different universes, for God's sake, sometimes. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but it allows us to be able to see that. I mean, I can't, uh, unless I go um, to a focus group or something, I would never touch the MAGA world. Right. I, mm-hmm. I, I would never touch it. Twitter allows me to be able to see some of what's going on there. And and the same thing during COVID, the anti-vaccine people and the it's really flu and it's not COVID. You know, you can ask me. I mean, I have strong feelings about those things. But Twitter allowed us all to be able to see what other people thought and felt, whether we agreed with it or not. And that's really like that. That's an important point because so, you know, we I can loop that point back to like what we've been talking about before is the most important lesson that people need to learn, like no matter if they're in business or they're just in life in general, is that you are not your customer. Right. And is that like your viewpoint is limited. And like and most of the time, if you're not careful, it can be dangerous because you assume that everybody sees everything exactly the way you do. You assume that your little group, your sphere of influence, your little part of the industry or whatever is exactly the way everything else is. And most of the time, what you find is that you're absolutely wrong. You're inconsequential. So you have to take that step back and be able to look and see the world the way it is, not the way you want it to be or you think it is based on your experience because your experience is limited, especially compared to 8 billion people. Yes. And I'm going to add on to that also. I think one of the biggest flaws in the uh, business world is uh, I'll call it the one thing mentality. So somewhere along the way, we've convinced ourselves that we need to simplify everything down to one thing where you have to stand for one thing. You have to say one thing. You uh, bucket people based off of one thing. And the reality would be is, is we're in a pretty dynamic world and people are pretty dynamic beings. And most people are not just one thing. Mm-hmm. Simply because they say one thing does not mean that they are all that one thing. Mm-hmm. And and I don't think it's uh, – I, I do. I, I push back on uh, – Sometimes I do, You and I could debate it on marketing strategy when people say we need to isolate one thing. I, I push back on that a lot. I, I think value is actually a combination of different factors. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't mean that you can't highlight one on occasion versus others, but typically any experience is a, a confluence of different things or coherence. That's probably a better word. To be able to use. And and I think that sometimes when we're talking to other people or when we're even trying to find customers, um, you know, uh, I can't remember what it's called there. It's, you know, when you do personas, I guess it is, which I think are stupid. So you're not. You were really- saying how you would argue with people about that. I will argue with you. That you are absolutely 100% right. <laughs> that personas are freaking stupid. They're just stupid. Yeah. But you're, you you're segment looking, based on behavior. You're looking not for, on like some dumbass thing like personas. Yeah, it's just doesn't. You're looking for co- coherence. 
it it's like uh it, people people do center themselves all people do and in even in an uh, in an audience group they do have a center spot and it may not be one thing but they all circle around some things and it could be attitudes it could be behaviors it could be a variety of different things i tend to think it's more attitudes than it's behaviors it's uh I, my friend david amerlin always pushes back on me he goes mindsets attitudes behaviors <laughs> and he's he's right in that you have to figure out oftentimes what a person's mindset is and their attitudes revolve around that and their behaviors get driven off of those things. Um, and I just think it's healthy to think about those things. A lot of businesses don't want to invest the time in that because they think it's a little too esoteric. Mm -hmm. um, but this is going to be obsessed with ROI at all costs. And when, you know, how fast is this going to pay off for me? And the, the answer is, is like sometimes you have to go slow to go fast. Well, you do. In, in addition to that, and I'll, I'll toss out a term. Um, I use it. I've used it for a long time. And a friend of mine in England, Jeff Marlowe, uses it. It's called future fitting. So if you, if you are focused on uh, – sales or specific objective or ROI on something, you run the risk of not being uh, fit into the future. You fit into the present, but you don't necessarily fit into the future. And I don't know a single business that um, doesn't envision that they're going to have a future. I, I can't think of one. I mean, I, I have run across hundreds of businesses that would argue that if I do the right thing today, then I'll, I'll exist tomorrow. And I, I always laugh and go, no, that's not true. The reality would be is, is that all that guarantees is, is that you're degrading on a daily basis. You are actually incrementally making yourself smaller and smaller. You may not see it in revenue. You may not see it in profit. You're probably going to start seeing it in the margins, but you're degrading yourself on a day-by-day -day basis. You're just making one small step towards extinction with that kind of attitude. That's not future fitting. Future fitting is more along the lines of if I can isolate what people's mindsets are and I can insert myself into mindsets, then I'm more likely to fit into their future. Mm-hmm. Well, it reminds me, and this is good because I, I didn't get to work him in here until now, and now I'm going to do it. <laughs> Peter Drucker, you got two jobs, innovation and marketing. <laughs> and But most most people aren't innovating because they're going, if I just do what, I, if I continue to do what I'm doing well, that's enough. It's not enough because that just means you're going to die slower than somebody who isn't doing the best they can do today. It you is. have and to always be innovation is not huge all the time. It can be just like small improvements. It doesn't have to be like the big earth shaking stuff. It's just getting better every day. It is. And it's if I if I had a whiteboard, because this is one of my favorite things, uh, it's not an either or replication is, is actually the core of every business. It, it's at the it's at the core of every successful business. I do not know um, a single hundred year business that cannot point to some um, replicable portion of their business. It, it's kind of like a, an engine. Uh, 
So an engine can go 150 miles per hour, but there are portions of the engine that never move. They hold everything together so that the other parts can move really, really fast to be able to generate the horsepower to be able to make the engine move. Businesses are like that. And part of the trick is to figure out what are the replicable portions of the business that you want to continue to replicate because they offer the efficiencies that are important that allow you to be able to become agile or have agility or have the innovations, um, emergence. I don't really care what word you use to be able to, to do it. They're all kind of packaged together. If you or if you can adapt to market dynamics, if you can take care of emergent opportunities, if you can innovate to be able to find new segments, they're all in the same bucket of things. Um, in, in my world, those are called aspects of a learning organization. Yeah. And so one final question, because we've been going on now for a long time before we even started recording. You talked about 100-year businesses. Right. And there's a um, there's some consistency in those hundred year businesses. Right. Um, At least in my understanding of what has made them successful that you see now as um, businesses that they can't stand the test of time because I what I forget how I want to say it is the um, if you look at the stock market, the average life cycle of a business now that makes the um, you know, the S&P is like 15 years and it used to be like 40 or 50 or 60, something like that. And it just shows to like how much it's been degrading. The three factors it seems that these businesses share in common, the ones that have been stuck around is like they have a strong brand, right? And they focus and that brand has a meaning. Uh, they have never lost their customer obsession and they continue to innovate. And whereas I see the ones that are declining are ones that have become falsely in believing in financialization, right? Which is maximizing every touch that they possibly can. Uh, case in point would be somebody like Boeing. Um, you know, they have uh, undermined their brand equity. Like they just keep, every time they do it, they, they look for ways to cut corners, which undermines their brand. And they lost touch with like the most important thing of being people. Uh, is my hypothesis way off base? Or am no. I... Uh, no, or am I, I somewhere in the vicinity of being right? Because no, right, I, I, I I agree with you. I'd I'd probably strip out maybe a couple of things, but I think that they're all. I think what you you find is is that, and we've talked about it before. Businesses, the natural arc of the business is to stratify. It, it's just the natural arc. You just you um, the mistake that most businesses make is is you find what you're good at and figure out how to become better at it. When the reality would be is is that better has limita- <laughs> limitations. There's it, it's not an infinite thing. To that's a finite world, and anytime your business stays in a finite world. Um, and to your point, I would latch innovation and brand. You started by saying they had a strong brand, but you can't have a brand without substance. So the reason why they've been able to uh, when I worked at J. Walter Thompson, we had a great presentation about what really is a brand. And we used to say that really you were not a brand unless you had crossed generations. It, it was a fabulous presentation, which I think they ditched because all of a sudden 
everybody wanted to convince themselves that they were a brand after being a week in business or something Mm -hmm. along those lines. I I don't know. I couldn't figure that out. But the reality, our argument was, is that you really, really weren't a brand until you'd crossed generations, until you'd figured out a way of moving from a younger audience to an older audience and then back to a younger audience again. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. basically you figure out a way to be able to do that. And it's not really the brand. It, it's more to your point and things that you talk about a lot. It's the value or the substance mm-hmm. that, that comes along with it. And either they innovated, adapted, or um, they figured out a way of being able to provide substance on an ongoing basis. So they were able to meet the market dynamics with value uh-huh. in, in some form or fashion. And that that provides the long lasting. That's why people that's why things like the on the S&P, they die because they're apps. They're they're mostly technology companies. So they're they're widgets and they claim that they're a brand. They're not. They're a widget and they're they're only as good until the next widget comes along. I mean, the reality would be is, is I mean, I think Kara Swisher said it the best on about Twitter. Twitter probably could go away and. Five years, but Something there'll be a fill its void. There'll be another Twitter. There'll be another, you know, gobbledygook yep. that, that comes along and it becomes a social platform. And what, uh, knowing your thinking, I was able to walk you into that answer that I was hoping I would get. <laughs> because what I want to leave people with here is this. You don't want to be a widget. You want to be a brand. Because most of the people who are listening to this, right, um, you got people who are at venues like Radio City Music Hall or Lincoln Center or um, no, Sydney Opera House or like with teams like the you know Atlanta Braves in your town, right? All of these people. These are brands that have stood the test of time. You're not a widget. You're a brand. A brand has meaning. A brand brings people together over and over and over again. It creates a virtuous circle. It's not a transaction. It's a relationship. That's a brand. A widget is a transaction. Um, Bruce, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, well, I have a, a blog, which is kind mm-hmm. of my, my personal way of being able to say, here's what's on my mind today. And that's, uh, enlightenedconflict.com. And then, uh, you can always find me on Twitter and it's just Bruce McTagg at, at Twitter. Those are probably yeah. the two best places to be able to find me. Awesome. Well, thank you. I, I now have had a think tank smarty, and that's official <laughs> label. Uh, you should update your Twitter uh, profile right now. Be think tank smarty. Uh, thank you so much for doing this. No, I really enjoyed this, Dave. You and I always have great conversations, and they kind of expand my mind a little bit. Oh, good. That's that's I, the I nicest hope, compliment I can give somebody. <laughs> I hope that you mean that. <laughs> yes. No, that's the <laughs> nicest compliment I can give anybody. Let me know what you think of my conversation with Bruce by sending me an email. It is my name, David DaveWakeman.com. Check out my website. It's DaveWakeman.com. Make sure you get the Talking Tickets newsletter. That's TalkingTickets.substack.com or the Business of Value. Businessofvalue.substack.com. One is all about tickets. The other one's all about strategy. Um, Together, they make a nice little package, uh, and they're free. As always, I'd like to thank you so much for listening. I know that this period of time that is now about to hit its third year has been incredibly tough for people. So if you need to talk to somebody, you need a shoulder to cry on, or just somebody to crack some awful dad jokes, 
I'm here for you. Just send me an email. Um, I look forward to hearing from you. Until next time, if this is the final time I talk to you in 2022, which I'm not 100% sure if it will be, Happy New Year. But thank you for listening. Um, The podcast grew about 13% this year. Um, So we're getting back to the numbers of 2019 again. Uh, I'm going to continue to try to do some interesting things here, including putting together a Q&A on pricing that I may get out before the end of the year and also a replay of my 2023 Numbers to Know webinar that's very, very popular and very, very interesting for folks. Um, But again, thank you so much for being here. Thanks you for listening. Uh, Thank you for supporting my work in all the ways that you do. I'll talk to you again soon. Take it easy.